Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, in a surprise announcement, Rhode Island's Congressman David Cicilline said he is stepping away from politics. How does this rare resignation so early into a congressional session shake up Democratic politics? Plus, the feds already said no to funding major repairs and reconstruction on the Cape Cod bridges, projected to cost a whopping $4 billion. Meanwhile, tens of millions of people each year use those bridges. And a high school in New Hampshire is training students for the state's booming outdoor tourism industry. It's our regional roundtable. Later in the show, the New England Confectionery Company, or NECO, closed its doors back in 2018, robbing fans of their famed candy wafers. But the legendary candy stayed in production after NECO was purchased by an Ohio-based candy company five years ago. I love NECO wafers, and the licorice ones are my favorite. I don't care what anybody says. In this encore segment, author Darlene Lacey recalled the legacy of NECO in her book, Neko, an epic candy tale. But first, joining me remotely, Steve Junker, managing editor of news at CAI, the Cape Coast and Islands affiliate of GBH. Hi, Steve. Hi, Callie. Ted Nisi, politics and business editor and investigative reporter for WPRI. Welcome, Ted. Great to be back, Callie. Glad to have you. And Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson on WNHN. Thanks for joining us, Arnie. Pleasure to join you. All right, I'm going to start with you, Ted, because uh, David Cicilline stepping away from Congress uh, feels abrupt and definitely was a surprise. Absolutely, Callie. Uh, Certainly to all of us in Rhode Island, uh, you know, we'd been just last year, I think we talked about it on this show, right before the census numbers came out, thought Rhode Island might lose one of its two House seats. And would it be Cicilline who would, you know, fight to keep the one seat? Well, we kept two. And now both congressmen have left within two years of that announcement. Um, Cicilline, you know, I sat down with him the morning he announced he was resigning. And uh, there were a couple factors. One, he was offered a job as CEO of the Rhode Island Foundation, the big uh, nonprofit funder here in Rhode Island. He's going to more than triple his salary uh, to $650,000 compared to what he makes in Congress. So that was, I think, an appeal. Um, it's the kind of job, uh, it's a, it's one of those jobs. It's, it's influential in the state yet somewhat apolitical. Um, so he gets to go into sort of a more nonpartisan role, but still be part of the mix uh, in terms of debates in the state. And he acknowledged that it was just less appealing to stay in Congress in the U S house as a Democrat who, uh, is now in the minority with a Republican majority that obviously he has very little, uh, he agrees with them on. Uh, and then, you know, if we're being honest, Cicilline tried and failed to get into a senior leadership position when the House uh, leaders were changing over, Nancy Pelosi and the other Democrats stepping aside, and he wasn't successful. So I think there was a bunch of things going on. But certainly for him to step aside only on the second month of a term he just won in November was a shock to everyone in Rhode Island. And what does that mean? Because, you know, there's been a conversation ad nauseum about the very delicate balances and, you know, losing uh, any Democrat, even though maybe that position will be 
replaced by a Democrat is a little dicey right now. Every vote counts, that's for sure. And we expect there will be a vacancy uh, in this seat in Rhode Island. He officially resigns June 1st. Um, and the special election to replace him probably won't happen until November. So there'll be a good, you know, six or so months uh, when Rhode Island's sec- uh, first district is not represented and therefore Democrats are down a vote. Um, you know, if there's something really, really close, they could miss that vote in that period. If there's something uh, the Republicans only need one vote to get through and there's no one there for. All right, Arnie, I'm sure you have some opinion. Oh, God, I have so <laughs> many things to ask. about. First of all, I want to remind you that one of the great things about David Cicilline wasn't what he did as a Trump impeachment manager. It's what he's done in fighting for antitrust reform. I mean, he is a huge champion, as I've read a whole bunch of articles about him and I've heard about him in the past about this, is that he never thought that this would be his area of expertise (laughs) like he was like encouraged to do it and now more than ever more than ever we need his skill set we need his leadership so to lose him and i understand i am angry at the democrats for not putting him in leadership let me start by that saying that and i can understand that i can understand suddenly not only being not in the minority leadership but then being in the minority is like a double whammy but um and and also he's the congressional equality caucus co-chair i mean look at all these roles he played i actually kind of envision that maybe someday he might want to run for president. I mean, I really do think he has that kind of cred and credibility. Um, now, now, Steve Junker, here in Massachusetts, we have a delegation that's very senior. Mm-hmm. So now Rhode Island is going to have end up with two of the most junior members of the House. We've already discussed it's a it's a, you know, down to one vote or two, perhaps. But the juniorness also plays a big part in this as well. You would think it has to when you think about uh, the, in Congress, so much depends on tenure to have influence and standing and giving that up. That must not be easy for somebody new to step in. Uh, I'm curious about there's a pretty wide open field, it looks like, for people <laughs> vying for the seat. Yeah, uh, we've got the two of the big names we thought might run. The House Speaker in Rhode Island isn't running. Uh, former gubernatorial candidate Helena Folks isn't running. Both of them could have raised a lot of money. So, you know, some of us think you could end up with you know, a dozen candidates, at least in the in the early part, because it just looks wide open. Well, I do want to, uh, uh, Ted, you talked to uh, Cicilline about why he's leaving in Congress. So let's hear a little bit of that. As I thought about where can I make the biggest difference in Rhode Island, leading this incredible organization that's involved in all of the things that matter, healthcare and economic opportunity and education, or, you know, spending the next few years in the House. And there was no question that I am certain that I'm going to have a greater impact. Now, I also want to pick up another piece because we I don't think we mentioned it, but he's openly gay. And that's played a large part in both his success and, you know, some of the early struggles, of course. So here he is reflecting on the progress he made as an LGBTQ politician. We've made tremendous progress. I was the first openly gay mayor of a capital city elected when I was elected mayor. When I got to Congress, there were three LGBTQ members. We now have 12, so we broke double digits. Um, But at the same time, we're seeing our community under relentless attack all across the country. Boy, is that is a whole issue. All of the pressures, the external pressures uh, being brought to bear on certainly on LGBTQ youth. Um, So that's a loss in the in the. Um, house. Ted, Ted, could I ask a question? Do you think he's interested in running for governor? 
Well, funny, it's almost like you've been watching politics a long time, Arnie. Uh, oh, you think so? God, am I so obvious? <laughs> well, it's I funny, have... I'll, I'll be quick because I know we have a bunch of other topics to get to, but uh, actually, Gina Raimondo, the former governor, uh, who's now, of course, U.S. Commerce Secretary here, in, or was governor of Rhode Island, she wanted Cicilline to run last year for governor and yeah. privately was encouraging him, but he decided not to. He's flirted with that in the past. To be honest, I think he'd what he'd really love would be to run for one of Rhode Island's two U.S. Senate seats. Mm -hmm. uh, Jack Reed and Sheldon Whitehouse have both been there quite a while, but to be honest, I don't see any sign they're going to be retiring anytime soon. Exactly. However, I didn't think he was going to retire either. So who knows what could happen? All right. Well, I am switching to another topic. Um, Steve, let me put it over in your lap. We're talking about these Cape Cod bridges. Um, I have just got to say to you that I was absolutely shocked. I guess I am naive. I assume that the, you know, when the engineers turned in the plans, everybody saw all the issues. This is a done deal. They would get. Uh, some federal funding, if not all. So the fact that we're st none of that happened, I, I'm stunned. I'm stunned. Were you surprised? I think everybody in the region was surprised because for a while now, all the local officials have been pointing to the federal government as the source for the funding to replace these two bridges. And for anyone who doesn't know, to get on or off the Cape by automobile, and even to get most folks out to Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard, you have to go over one of these two bridges, the Bourne and Sagamore Bridge, which go over the Cape Cod Canal. And, and these bridges were, bu were built in the 1930s. So they're almost 100 years old, but that's not necessarily old when you think about major bridge infrastructure. You know, you think about the George Washington Bridge in New York City is the same age or the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. But these bridges apparently have not a great design. And they're very difficult and expensive to repair. And it's that cost of repair year over year, which is really driving the, the conversation here that they just have to be replaced entirely. Right before the pandemic, they were talking about a price tag to replace both bridges of about a billion dollars. And everybody thought, oh, that's a lot of money. Now they say it could be as much as $4 billion. Wow. And uh, everyone knows what happens to the cost of a public works project, so it doesn't get any cheaper. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so... Uh, and, and the federal government, kind of by a quirk, is is on the hook for these bridges because they're owned by the Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, but the Army Corps of Engineers says they don't want to own them anymore and they don't want to operate them anymore. So they want to uh, hand this over to the state and the state says, we'll take control of it, but you still have to pay for this. Hmm. So it's it's kind of a it's a big hot potato but definitely right now, the federal government is expected to be the one to pick up the price tag when this moves forward. But that's one of the big one of the big questions here is when does this move? forward? Because originally, Steve, the plan was they were to start when now or, you know, it was it was soon that, you know, the, the big um, reconstruction was going to start in the original plan, as I understood it. Would they have been talking about this for a long time, Callie? Uh, but it's so there's so many moving pieces here because, as I said, the federal government owns the bridges themselves. But then, right where the bridges touch down on the land, it turns over to the state and all the connections to the highways and the ways that you know it feeds into local roads and the cross Cape Highway. All that has to be worked out by the state. So, and then you know, there's just a host of of questions that replacing these bridges bring up. Exactly. You know, do, do exactly. you build bigger bridges? Do you just replace them with what they have? What does pedestrian and bike access look like? What do the bridges even look like? Because they're right now these kind of iconic structures that are for many people, the entry to Cape Cod. And 
you know, if you're going to replace it, what do you replace it with? Just a nondescript bridge or something that has a message to it? So it's been uh, kind of fascinating to watch this conversation play out, even around some of those secondary issues. I love this story. But the reason I love this story is what the H are you building? Because it's not just about a bridge. Because you're talking about also a bridge to the future. And what we know about the future is climate change. What we know about the future is maybe the desire for more public transportation and for less individual transportation. Do you expand something and add an extra lane? Does that actually deal anything in the way of reducing the traffic? Probably not. It just brings more cars in. Do you want more cars on the Cape? So as I'm thinking about all this, it's not just about a bridge, everyone. It changes the whole course of life, not only for how you get on the bridge, but then what happens when you get off the bridge. And let me just throw something out. I mean, one of the questions is, would you have rail? Would you have one of the bridge, bridges dedicated just to mass transit, one just dedicated to individual cars? And I was thinking something totally crazy, and I didn't see it in any of the articles that you wrote, but I think this is the time to dream because we're really not talking about anything until 2030. You know that. And so as I'm dreaming about this, have they started thinking about maybe why don't we bring in a monorail? Why not? Like, let's be as creative as possible, understanding that traffic is our issue, understanding the climate crisis is our issue, understanding can we actually handle more cars on the Cape? And let's start thinking really creatively because the bridge is only the beginning of the conversation because what it bridges to is the huge challenge. Well, I'm often in some kind of transportation going over these bridges, so this means a lot to me. <laughs> so, though I want to point out that a lot of your coverage, Steve, has dealt with all these other um, potentially ancillary issues. And so um, we have this clip from somebody that uh, spoke to CAI, your stations. This is Stephen Buckley of Chatham, who's skeptical of the changes the new bridges might bring. This is going to be a major change for Cape Cod if you can make it easier for people to come to Cape Cod. Day trippers who would have been discouraged from coming to Cape Cod will come down because, hey, there's no backup at the bridges. Okay. So that's just a Cape resident, right? At one of these open meetings that, that have been held as they sort of vet these potential plans for the bridges. And that's somebody speaking about exactly what we're talking about. If you make a bigger funnel running into the same size bucket, you're you're bound to run into problems. But that is really hasn't seemed to be part of the conversation here right now. They are focused, like I say, on the engineering solution to an engineering problem. Feels like Cape Cod final kind of has a, a Disney World problem, right? Where there is just finite <laughs> amount yes. of square acreage and way more demand to be there. Exactly. Than- maybe fits. And I, I truly don't know what the answer is because I, I'm planning to go to the Cape this summer too, like everybody else. So I'm part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I'm going to Martha's Vineyard, so I need to be in that funnel. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Steve Junker, Managing Editor of News at CAI, Ted Nisi, Politics and Business Editor and Investigative Reporter for WPRI, and Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson on WNHN. We're discussing the latest regional news. Now, Arnie, I'm going over to you with what I hope is good news. I love this story about um, you know, uh, the high school in North Conway training students for jobs in New Hampshire's growing outdoor tourism industry. Well, duh, of course, it makes sense in New Hampshire. And um, that's and people need jobs. This seems to be a Win-win. It is, sort of. Okay, so I am, I'm so aware of this part of the, my state. I used to be the president of the Tri-County CAP program, which is a community action program, and it was based in this gener- general area. It was based in Berlin, but it served this. It was the largest employer in that county. 
was a poverty agency. Can I just repeat that? The largest in So understand it's, and, and what did we replace? You know, what did we find for jobs? We built two prisons, okay? We were trying to figure out how do you keep people there? How do you create a 365 day a year economy? And what we knew is that when kids graduated from Conway or Berlin or Gorham, they left. They left, they saw no future, they saw no opportunity. That's the beginning story. Then what's the second story? There's nobody to work. What do you know? We can't find a warm body to come up and, you know, work in our industries, you know, work in our fields, work in our ski areas, do the snowboarding, the mountain biking, whatever it is, you can't find people. So one of the reasons why they want to give these kids these industrially recognized certifications in the area of recreational activities is that what you're saying to these kids is, okay, I am going to give you a skill set. The skill set will give you certification. That certification will work great if you want to stay home. It'll also work in the other 49 states, okay? So you, you have something that's really tangible, but it's also a way for a lot of employers up here to suddenly realize that they can't afford to have seasonal staff. They need year-round staff. And the way to get year-round staff is to have people skilled in the winter sports and then in what happens in the summer. I mean, those that can bike and those that can ski, guess what? They got a job all year round. So it really is a, a, an employment desperation level. It's also a way for a lot of people to say, I want my kid to stick around. There's no reason for them to stick around. So hopefully it's this, but it also, I'm going to hate to say this, but it's part of our immigration problem. You know, we haven't brought enough people in to work. We're building walls on our borders. And what's happening is, is that people are trying to figure out how do I get someone to stay with me and work with me? And here by going into the high schools and giving them the certification, a lot of these kids already love skiing, already love mountain biking. What they didn't realize is they could make it into a living. Well, this is great. This is at Kennett High School at the, the Mount Washington Valley Career and Technical Center is located there. So they're offering wilderness first aid classes. That's year-round for sure. Certifications in swift water rescue. I can see that being year-round. And a course in how to fix mountain and road bikes. And I could see that being year-round. So you're right. Um, that's a great opportunity to not only take, take advantage of what is native to New Hampshire, the whole landscape and the outdoors, but, you know, give some people jobs. I love it. And it has a relationship to STEM skills as well. I mean, I think that's something that was also mentioned. I want to make sure people understand this. They're going, oh, okay, you're making little worker bees. But no, all of a sudden they have to understand the value of math. They have to understand the value of science. They're learning these medical things. All those things relate to science and math and a lot of things. So while they don't necessarily say, oh, I hate this, but I want to be out in the wilderness. Well, guess what? That math skill might get you there. And so I think it's a really good connection. Arnie, I was just think, wondering how we could apply this to the Cape, whether we need high school fishing classes or high school aquaculture classes. Oh, yeah. Oh, it would. I, but here's the issue for you. That's not the issue for us. You can't afford to live on the Cape. Right. So even if you can, even if you get these people in, with these incredible skills, they can't live there, at least up in the North Country. I hate to break it to you, but you can actually buy a really nice house for $160,000 a year. Do you know what I mean? So there is still the ability not only to find employment, but also to afford to live. The Cape has got so many challenges. Now, speaking of not being able to afford to live, Steve Junker, down your way on Martha's Vineyard, they lost the Lapels dry cleaning business. It was a year-round business because the new manager and his family could not find housing. This is real. This is the story, you know, one mm -hmm. of the big stories of this region right now is 
the price of housing is just driving out the essential workers in our communities. Right, uh, right now, we just uh, one of our local agencies has put out a statistic that half of the Cape's workforce is traveling over the bridges every day, lives off Cape. Those Cape, same Cape bridges that we need to replace, half of the workforce is coming from off Cape every day to work on the Cape, and it's you know similar and if not more so for the islands right now. The morning ferries that go over to the islands carrying over huge numbers of workers to the islands in order to continue building all the construction work that has to happen there. And so it's a real uh, head scratcher because there's no easy answer here. I would note that I believe part of the issue has been driven by a lot of people coming back to live in on the vineyard on the Cape during covid they only came seasonally. Then they came and stayed longer. So <laughs> a lot of space was taken up. Now they're demanding other services, whatever, whatever. But the, but the result was the housing prices uh, went up and there's fewer kind of transient uh, housing that might have been available for our folks. Well, I think, uh, Callie, I, this is why I love that you do this regional show, because I think you hear in our conversation, you know, Arnie's talking about, well, the good news is if you're up in North Conway, you can get a nice house relatively cheap compared to the rest of the region, but we've got to find jobs for everybody. So can live there. Exactly. Down here in Southern New England, Cape Cod, Rhode Island, uh, even into Connecticut and obviously Eastern Massachusetts, it's, it's, I think it might be the biggest issue of all at the moment is the cost of housing and the, and, and it feels like everything is frozen about what to do about it. We see constant talk at the Mass State House, at the Rhode Island State House. There's a new push this year in Rhode Island to try to uh, liberalize some of the laws around zoning, but we're already seeing fight back from communities that say they just don't want more people necessarily. Uh, Ted, it, the rental increase in New Hampshire was what's called extreme last year, 24% average rental increase, 24%. And you know what some of the communities are doing here? Because housing is huge here. Maybe in the North Country, they still have open space and they can sort of figure it out and they still have some there's not the same housing premium because you're so far from everything but there is a developer in dover new hampshire that is developing tiny houses mm. tiny i think they're like 340 square feet but they're tall so you have a loft you know i mean we're talking about an entire development of tiny houses and they're doing it one for affordability they're doing it because workers have to have a place to live and they don't want to like you know spend all their money on rent and then end up with nothing at the end of the end of the year so they're literally look and it's becoming an answer to in so many interesting ways it's not the mobile home park the manufacturing home park it is literally a development of tiny homes in Dover, and that is becoming the answer. The question then becomes, how do the zoning boards and the planning boards deal with this? And here's an interesting point, because you mentioned the children, like how do we like pay for the children? I wonder if you can actually have kids in a tiny house. <laughs> See what I mean? I I'm a, like, oh. I have a nine month old and I, I would lose my mind if we were in a tiny there house. There you go. Well, maybe that was intentional. See my point? This is for workers, not for families, but we're calling it a tiny home, in, you know, air quotes. It's very, very interesting to see how this one threads the needle. Steve, I bet you can be beat that percentage. So Arnie says 24% increase. I bet down Cape Way, I bet it's higher than that. All right. So in Chatham right now, the median family house that you can buy is, uh, I think, a $1.3 million. Oh. Wow. Uh, Nant Nantucket, which of course is as extreme as you get, is close to $3 million now. Oh, so wow. a, how, how do you have a community where teachers can live? How do you have a, exactly. a community where nurses and doctors and, well, nurses and firefighters and police officers can live? You know, the exactly. essential workers, the backbone of our community, the people we need here, 
Uh, it's we could build a third island uh, <laughs> that might be on, cheaper yeah on that one and build have it very liberal oh, on housing stuff and then everyone can just take so a boat sad. that's gonna have to this this is all about political will in the end because uh eventually all those people who are on in those spaces realize there's no one to work so mm-hmm. now what you know i mean it, it's it it so to be continued um, Arnie, let me run back to you with the uh, New Hampshire lawmakers considering requiring new voter documentation. So in New Hampshire, we should say that unregistered people can sign an affidavit swearing that, you know, they are eligible to vote. This new thing, if it would happen new for New Hampshire, that is, they would be they'd have to provide documentation. Voter ID is a huge issue uh, and ongoing controversy in many states and continues to be. And why not motor vehicle? Why can you use motor vehicle as a registration, by the way, there? Well, well, I, I again, I, here's what the problem. We have same day registration, everyone. Same day. A lot of people have registration where, you know, it ends six weeks before or whatever it is. We have same day. So that means that when you come in, a lot of people come in thinking, oh, good, I can vote. I have to register the same. They don't recognize the reams of documentation. They may need a passport. They may need a license. I mean, a license doesn't say where you're born, you know? I mean, it, you know, and so what they need is they need so much but what we've been able to do is say okay sign this affidavit and in a couple of weeks you'll just have to prove that you in fact are you know legally allowed to live here and and register to vote here and you know a couple of thousand people actually probably participate in that they they may be missing something well obviously they're beginning to not like at least republicans aren't uh the idea of same-day registration so what they're trying to do is again put a bar up to make it even a little more difficult because we don't have motor voter in new hampshire we don't have any of those things that make it easy and therefore the one wonderful thing we did which was with same-day registration is that it really did encourage people to participate and they could decide at the last minute that's a fabulous invitation on unless you need reams of documentation on that day. And if you've never voted in the past, you wouldn't know to bring a passport with you. You wouldn't know to bring this. And that's one of the reasons for doing it is they really want to tap down on that idea of same-day registration. I always like to point out that in Texas, one only needs a gun license to register. Not a student v- not a student license. That is but correct, exactly. but just a gun license. I just like yep. to point that out. Um, Ted, no pediatricians in Rhode Island. Yeah, ooh, another one, uh, obviously, in my wheelhouse at the moment with a little one, but this is another, you know, and, and it all, it actually goes back to some of the other stuff we've been talking about here, housing, etc. Um, you know, it's, there's actually a great Washington Post piece I was reading this morning about just what a tough winter it was for pediatricians with the triple-demic we heard about where kids were getting so sick and the mental health issues, etc. And as we see with primary care physicians, which is what pediatricians are for kids, um, the hours are grueling. The insurance, uh, uh, the money insurance pays the rates um, for a lot of what they do is not super competitive when you look at the hours and the number of people they're seeing. And we just don't see an inflow of young people as the older pediatricians retire. So it's gotten to the point where people uh, moving to the state with young kids are calling around and realizing all the pediatricians offices say, sorry, we can't take any new patients. Um, and it just feels like it's, I feel like every week we're doing at least one major story at PRI about uh, a personnel shortage, teachers in the Providence school systems, not nearly enough of them, pediatricians, we did primary care physicians previously. Um, it's just it's just this global problem, just not enough people for just about every job. And you know what? And, har- and the good part of being a pediatrician is talking. And that's usually the part that 
insurance doesn't pay for. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, but there, there was a wonderful article in MedPage today about Match Day. And Match Day is when, you know, the doctors are finishing their medical school and then they get to decide what state or what hospital they want to go work for. One of the things they said at this thing is that because of the Dobbs decision and because of a lot of states that are now really sort of, you know, stepping down on the whole idea of women's health, a lot of these doctors, I think they said as many as 82% were reluctant to go to those states. And this is not OBGYNs. This was all docs, okay? Don't want to go to those states. So one of the marketing things might be for Rhode Island to go to match day and say, hey, come to us. <laughs> come to yeah, us. You know, right. when it comes to your ability to actually be a good doctor and do what protects your patients, we encourage that. And that's what's going to be so interesting. You're going to see these healthcare deserts in places like, you know, Texas and Arkansas and Louisiana, but it really becomes an opportunity if we recognize it for a lot of the states, especially in the Northeast, to say to these young doctors, come to us. You will be able to exercise your profession and we need you. And in case people forgot, Dobbs is the Supreme Court decision, uh, anti-abortion decision. So just want to make put that clear. All right, I'm squeezing this in, Steve. Endangered right whales, only 340 of them remain. I thought, I guess wrongly, from what I've seen from the preponderance of your coverage, that the the ropeless lobstermen fishing was a big boon um, to their preservation and safety, but it appears maybe not everybody likes that. Well, that's right. This is the season for uh, endangered right whales to enter our waters. They migrate up the coast. And typically this time of year, lobstermen in Massachusetts are not allowed to fish for about three months in order to keep their ropes out of the water because entanglements are one of the big threats to the species. This year, there's a special program going on in which a select small group of lobstermen are using this experimental new gear called ropeless fishing technology. And that those typical lobster traps that you think of, they're on the bottom of the ocean, and then they can be sort of triggered by an app on a phone and a airbag will release and a line connected to that comes up to the surface and you can pull up the lobster trap that way. Uh, this is controversial technology. Not, lob not a lot of lobstermen really are embracing this. A lot of them are pushing back. They say it's too complicated. They don't. There's still a lot of questions over. You know, when you have your buoys in in the water, you can see where all your traps are. You can see where the other guys' traps are. So, what happens if gear gets put on top of each other? How does this get resolved? And then there's a cost. It's a huge cost of putting this kind of technology in salt water. And who's going to pay the lobstermen to change over all their traps? So. There's a lot of questions about this, but they're experimenting with it right now. But the overall motivation is still to work for the safety of the right whales, right? The overall, one of the overall motivations here is to keep lobstermen working, to keep the, the Massachusetts lobster industry, which is already challenged by, you know, as climate change warms our waters, a lot of lobsters have, there's a sense that the lobster population is migrating further northward. This industry is already, uh, you know, facing challenges and trying to integrate with this endangered species, sharing that same body of water all the way around Cape Cod into Cape Cod Bay. It's not easy. No, it's not. And I'm looking forward to my lobster roll after I get across the bridge. So, you know. <laughs> if, if the bridges are there, that's right. Yes. Well, I, 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 I think we should start a GoFundMe site and we should start paying for these new lobster traps. I, I don't expect these lobstermen to pay for it. I really don't. I understand they feel like they're under assault. I want them to move to a new technology. It's hard to teach an old lobsterman a new trick. But basically, if you provide them with this new thing and if it actually does work and save the whales, it's a win-win. Don't ask them to pay for it. That should be our commitment 
happened to them because we appreciate the whales collectively, then we should help protect them collectively. Well, again, that's a political will question. So we'll see how that, how that, how that goes down. Well, I want to thank all of you for joining me today. Very robust conversation, as I always expect from you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Steve Junker is the managing editor of news at CAI, the Cape Coast and Islands affiliate of GBH. Ted Nisi is politics and business editor and investigative reporter for WPRI in Rhode Island. And Arnie Arneson is host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson on WNHN. Coming up, who could forget the iconic Necco wafers, the tiny pastel-colored candy discs that were a New England staple. But when the New England Confectionery Company, or Necco, sold their production company in 2018, fans were left wondering what could possibly replace the beloved candy. Learn what happened to Necco five years ago in this Encore episode. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 